Now, if you were to ask someone down on Dixon Street or perhaps over on campus, who do you follow, my guess is the first thing you'd hear would be perhaps a list of names of some prominent feeds on their social media. You know, footballer Cristiano Ronaldo has over half a billion, that's B, like billion with a B, followers on Instagram. Singer and actress Selena Gomez has just under half a billion. Reality star Kylie Jenner, 400 million. Former wrestler and actor Dwayne The Rock Johnson, 400 million. Now, maybe you don't follow any of these people. I, I don't personally. But my guess is others of you are following the, the whole Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey romance leading into the Super Bowl. Right, all the growing conspiracies as well. So maybe you've heard them, right? The, the game is rigged for the Chiefs and they're going to win and Swift is going to come down and endorse Biden, right? It's all over the internet. I guess we'll find out next Sunday. Friends, following is big business. Ronaldo is estimated to earn over $3 million per Instagram post. Like, I would never put down my phone. I would just post nonstop. Which probably explains why recent surveys now reveal that nearly 60% of Gen Zers, so those born between 1997 and 2012, they say, again, more than 60%, they'd like to be social media influencers as a career, for their career. You know, there was a time when you used to look up to heroes. So young boys would look up to astronauts like Neil Armstrong or maybe girls to, to women like Sally Ride. But, but, you know, today we just look to celebrities. We follow celebrities. And given that the average Instagram account has over 700 followers, we can't linger on any one person or post too long. So, friend, is that all that following entails? A five-second glance at a post while you wait for the light to turn green. You know, a quick, a quick tap on the reel as you scroll from one to the next as you quickly try to shovel food in your mouth and then rush on with your day. Is that what it means to be a follower? For many, it is today. Friend, is that what it means to follow Jesus? Is that all it looks like? Well, it's questions like this this morning that bring us back to our study in the Gospel of John. So let me invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 35 through 51. And if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, don't fret. We have Bibles provided in the seatbacks before you, those red Bibles. And I think you can find our passage on page 886. Page 886. Now, in case you missed the first two weeks in John's gospel, uh, John was written primarily to Jewish and Greek skeptics, those tempted to view Jesus and his followers through squinted eyes and through furrowed brows. And John tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, that he wrote this gospel for a specific purpose, namely that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is a book centered on belief. But not just belief in belief, not just faith in faith, but belief in this Jesus who is our sacrifice, our substitute, our salvation, right? The Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, as we thought about two weeks ago. So what would it mean, 
what would it look like to believe in this Jesus? This, you know, Jesus isn't on Facebook, right? I, I don't know if people pretend to be Jesus on Facebook. I'm just telling you, Jesus is not on Facebook. He's not on Instagram. He's not like a YouTuber and doesn't have a TikTok account. So what does it look like then to follow Jesus? Well, follow along as I read to us from John 1, 35 through 51. We read the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than this. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay, now our passage this morning is really divided into two sections, really two stories broken up over two consecutive days. And the first day we have, verses 35 to 42, where Andrew and uh, his brother Peter and this unnamed disciple follow Jesus. And then the next day, verses 43 to 51, we move to Galilee where Philip and then Nathaniel also follow Jesus. So notice how that word follow just repeatedly appears. Verse 37, we read of John's two disciples who what? They, quote, followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus addresses those he sees following him. Verse 40, we learn that Andrew was one of the two who followed Jesus. And importantly, verse 43, Jesus calls out to Philip, and what does he say to him? He says, verse 43, follow me. So I think if you want to summarize these uh, verses in a sentence, disciples of Jesus drop everything to follow him and witness to him 
as they're transformed by him. So I know it's a little longer than I usually like, but there it is again. Disciples of Jesus drop everything to follow him and witness to him as they're transformed by him. So what does it mean practically then to follow Jesus? And I just want us to note sort of three pairs of contrasts derived from that main idea. Following Jesus is about first, it's about a person, not a system. First, following Jesus is about a person, not a system. Second, it's an invitation, not simply argumentation. Right? It's an invitation, not argumentation. Third, it is about transformation, not stagnation. Third, it's about transformation, not stagnation. So those will serve as our three points. If you missed them, don't worry. Hopefully I'll repeat them as we go through. All right, so first, following Jesus is about a person and not a system. Right? It's about a person, not a system. And friends, that's part of what makes just Christianity unique. We look as Christians to a person. We hope in a person. Yet for most religions, it's all about a system. So Hinduism would stress a, a system of works and devotion in order to establish and build our karma. Buddhism is all about following the path or the way or, or the road to enlightenment. Islam calls Muslims to become righteous and acceptable by principally right, a regimen uh, of prayer, right, detailed regimen of prayer, of almsgiving, of fasting, right, living according to the Quran. It's a, it's a whole system. Scientology offers a bridge to total freedom consisting of at least eight different levels where you have to pay lots of money and it takes many years to rise up the levels. But friends, Christianity is different than that, different than all of those. It's not about some religious system. It is, again, about a person. For notice how in these verses, everyone's attention, the camera is always panning and focusing on Jesus. So when Jesus walks by, John the Baptist, verse 36, John doesn't say, behold, a 10-part path to enlightenment. Like, go sign up for the class. That's not what John says. He, he sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples hear this, they don't go enroll in a seminar. They don't book a trip to Mecca. Verse 37, what do they do? They followed Jesus, the person. When Jesus asked them, verse 38, what are you seeking? Notice their reply. Like, where are you staying? That's, what they, how, that's how they respond. And we might think by that question, they're really interested in whether or not they're staying down at the graduate or out at the Hyatt or something. That's really not their interest. They really want to know him. They really want to know if he's the Messiah. They're just a little too chicken to ask him. And so they're like, oh, where are you staying? Jesus invites them, notice, to stay with him. And when Andrew goes to his brother Simon, he doesn't say to Simon, hey, guess what? I found a religious formula. No, he says, I found the Messiah, verse 41. In verse 42, he brought him to whom? To Jesus. And when Jesus finds Philip, verse 43, he doesn't look and say, okay, now obey these seven sacraments. No, he says what? Verse 43, follow me. God didn't send us a religious formula, an encyclopedia. 
even a system of dogma. God sent us the person of Jesus. And notice even when these disciples again ask where Jesus is staying, did you notice how Jesus doesn't directly address them? That's one of the frustrating things about Jesus. You read through the Gospels and he's asked questions and sometimes he just doesn't answer the question. But what does he do? He invites them to come to him. He says, come to me and find out. Friends, sometimes Jesus doesn't give us all the answers to our questions. He gives us something better. He gives us himself. And he does that to teach us that he is enough. Friends, here's one of the greatest tests of Christian discipleship. If everything was stripped from you, if you lost everything, your health, your happiness, if you were rejected from that school or that program, if you lose the girl and then lose the job, if you lose even your family and your friends in your reputation, if you lose everything, will Jesus still be enough? Will he still be enough for you? You know, I've been walking through my own set of uh, a difficult season these past two years. I feel like I've kissed more disappointment, honestly. I've kissed more disappointment these last two years than any other two years in my own life. We all have those seasons. I trust you have had seasons like that. Some of you maybe even be in a season just like that this morning. And the question that I'm forced to confront almost daily is, is Jesus enough? Will I be satisfied in him? Can I find rest in him? Can I find peace in him? In the midst of my day, which may not be going as I want, can I find joy in him and satisfaction in him and hope in him? Can I pray with the psalmist, with David, Psalm 16, verse 2, Christ, you are my Lord, and I have no good, I have nothing good besides you. Can I say that? Friends, there are days I can't say that. I mean, I kind of try, but I just, I can't quite bring myself to do it, right? Days are just hard. Some days you just get ticked off. You get frustrated. What does Jesus do? He beckons us to come to him. He calls to me and he calls to you again and again. And he says, follow me. Come to me. Behold me. And to know him, to truly know this person to be loved by him, to be accepted by him, to be led by this Jesus, to have him, we could lose everything and still consider it gain if we know him, if we truly know him. Friend, can you say that? That God could strip everything from you and you could still count it gain because you have Christ. That right there is the essence of Christian discipleship. That's what following Jesus in the end is all about. To know that if we have him, we have everything, and we can finally lose nothing. Nothing that won't be fully satisfied in him. But you know, if you view Christianity simply as a set of religious rules, as a bunch of theological propositions, and of course Christianity contains them, but if that's all that it is, the sum and substance to you, your heart is going to grow cold. You're going to become frustrated. You're going to become disillusioned. You're going to become angry because you've lost sight of him. 
You've lost your grasp on him. You've taken your eyes off of Christ. To walk with Christ is to walk with a person, right? Side by side, arm in arm. Friends, precepts don't embrace us, but Christ does. Rules don't rescue us, but Christ does. Theological articulations themselves won't satisfy us, but Christ does. So if you've come this morning and you wouldn't profess to be a Christian, recognize Christianity, again, is not finally a set of principles or precepts, or even just religious propositions. Christianity is first. It is all about a person. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. And who is this Jesus Christ? Well, our, our verses tell us. So notice twice he's called what? He's called rabbi, which means teacher. Right? He's a remarkable teacher. And of course, he's more than a teacher, but, he, but he's also not less. He is a teacher. He's also, verse 41, the Messiah, as in the promised one who has come to deliver his people. He is the Lamb of God, verse 36, the one who lays down his life as a substitute and sacrifice for his sheep. He's the one to whom the law and the prophets point. The whole Old Testament finds its sum and substance, its entire fulfillment in Jesus, we see verse 45. That's why he's the very Son of God, the King of Israel, verse 49. He alone is the path to God. He alone is the only mediator between man and God. You know, that's what that final, somewhat enigmatic statement in verse 51 is all about. So look down with me, verse 51. When Jesus says to Nathanael, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that right there is a reference to the Old Testament story of Jacob and his famous vision in Genesis 28, the one that uh, Tracy read for us earlier in the service, where Jacob sees this ladder, or you could also translate it, the stairway that is linking heaven and earth. And so Jesus here is saying in verse 51, he is saying, I am the stairway to God. I am where God and humanity intersect. I am the only mediator between God and man. Jesus is saying, I alone am the way to the Father. You know, as John was teaching this morning in the heart of the kings, what do we like to do? We, we like to use laws and rules as a ladder by which we climb our way to God and try to make ourselves acceptable to God. But it was never meant to be that way. Now we're seeing the ladder is a person, right? We come to him. He is the one by whom we have access to God. The gateway to heaven, the path of life, Friend, it's not found in a holy place. It's not found in religious precepts and propositions. It, again, is found in a person. And Jesus opens wide, throws wide those gates, those who would follow him. So what does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, as we're going to see, it looks like confessing from sin, turning from sin, repenting of it, and then like these individuals do, right? They're going to drop everything. They're going to realize Christ is better than anything this world has to offer. And they're going to leave everything, including their sin, and they're going to believe 
and place their faith in this Jesus. And they're going to walk with him to the end. And trusting their lives to him. Knowing that he sacrificed himself to pay the penalty of their sins. And he rose again from the grave as proof that if they trust and remain in him, right, he has called them, made them his own. They will be in heaven one day with him. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. He is worthy of our everything. You know, hundreds of Christians in this room have made that decision to walk with and to follow Christ. Will you, if you haven't done that? Why wouldn't you follow this Jesus? I assure you there is no one more beautiful and wonderful in all the world than this Jesus. And you know me, I'm not a sappy, emotional guy, okay? But to know him truly is to walk with him and give up everything for him following jesus begins well i should say following uh, and being a disciple begins and ends with a person again not a system but second thing that we need to learn about becoming a follower of jesus uh, it is about an invitation not argumentation it's about an invitation not argumentation so look back with me to verse 38 so there, two of John's disciples are beginning to follow Jesus, and Jesus turns to them and asks them in verse 38, he says, what are you seeking? And those right there are the first words of Jesus in John's gospel. Verse 38, what are you seeking? They're words he's actually going to return to two more times, once in chapter 18, once in chapter 20. Both of those are critical junctures in the course of his ministry. Jesus recognizes every one of us. We come through these doors and we're seeking something in life. You know, maybe we're seeking power and popularity. Maybe we're seeking comfort and contentment. Maybe we're seeking success and satisfaction, right? We're all seeking something. Our hearts are longing after something. Now, these disciples wanted a change in their government, right? Someone who would rid them of all their Roman oppressors, but Jesus is going to tell them that there is something better than having the right person in the White House. Notice what Jesus does. He invites them to him. That's what Jesus does. What does he say in verse 39 to them? He says, come and see. That's what he calls them to do. Come and see. In other words, bring all of your questions to me. It's an invitation. Jesus doesn't launch when they start to first address him. He doesn't launch into some theological discourse about what they do and don't understand about the Lamb of God, right? He's not trying to argue their way into the kingdom. He offers an invitation. Come and see. Friends, that's what Jesus asks of all of us. Are you curious? Jesus says, come and see. Do you have questions? Jesus smiles and says, yeah, you know what? You can bring those questions to me. It doesn't matter if they're the right questions. Jesus says, you know what? I can handle it. We can sort all that out together, he says. Are you skeptical? Like Nathaniel, right? There in verse 47, Nathaniel can't imagine anything good coming out of Nazareth. Because folks in Nazareth were a bit like the sort of backwoods country cousins, right? The uncouth ones. They're the ones who are known more for their moonshine and for their drawl, right? That's, those are the folks from Nazareth. It's why in Acts 24, verse 5, Christians 
are contemptuously dismissed as what a Nazarene sect. That's how they're dismissed. So no wonder Nathaniel is saying, can anything good come out of that place? But Jesus says to Nathaniel and to his skepticism, he says, come and see. Come and see. Becoming a follower of Christ is about an invitation. Notice Jesus expects nothing from them at this point. He doesn't call them to prove their worth right out of the gate. He doesn't call them to clean up their act. He doesn't demand of them a model sermon so they can prove their prowess in preaching. He doesn't require them to score well first on some Old Testament exam. He merely says, come and see and leave the rest to me. So if you're skeptical, like Nathaniel here, he would call out to you this morning, come and see. If you are unsure, he would say, come and see. Take up my word. Read the record about me. Consider my life. Behold me. Engage me. Right? You may have questions about the Bible. Jesus is like, yeah, we can deal with those together. You can trust me. Come with an open mind. Read, Jesus says, and gather with my people. Learn with them. Learn from them. Behold me in them, Jesus will say. I wonder if you're willing to do that as a skeptic. I remember when I was a skeptic. And I remember reading verses like this. And part of me was like, I'm a little afraid to do that. I don't really want to think about the possible consequences. I'd rather not come and see because I fear if I see, I may want to follow. And I didn't want to follow Jesus. Maybe you're a bit fearful of coming and seeing. But to my Christian friend, Jesus is also where you take your doubts. It's where you take your skepticism. Jesus is where you take your fears. Come and see isn't something we simply do once, right? Coming and seeing is the consistent striving of the Christian to continue to come and to behold Jesus. And friends, notice Jesus' patience. Notice how he doesn't press these curious disciples for an immediate response. It's not what he does. He doesn't lead them directly into the sinner's prayer. He doesn't quickly usher them down the aisle to the front of the church. Rather, he invites them to spend time with him before making a real commitment. Friends, I think that's a good reminder to us, maybe even a warning to us in our own evangelism. Because the reality is we can manipulate and coerce people into making a decision, but that is not the same thing as making a disciple. We can't force the hand of the Spirit. You know, we would never force a premature birth physically, right? The consequences could be far too tragic. Well, friends, if we wouldn't do that physically, we shouldn't do it spiritually. The consequences are equally potentially as tragic. But come and see is not only what Jesus says to us. Notice, come and see is also what we are to say to others. What did Jesus say to those two curious and I think a little cowardly disciples at the beginning, right? Verse 39, Jesus says to them, come and see. But then do you notice in the second section when Philip meets the skeptical Nathaniel, verse 46, what does Philip say to Nathaniel? He uses Jesus' words and he says, come and see. Verse 46. 
just as we are invited to behold Jesus and to get to know him and experience him and enjoy him and learn from him, so we also invite others to do the very same. We come and see Jesus in order to go and tell others about Jesus. It's as simple as that. We come and see Jesus, and then we go to tell others about Jesus. Because what's the first thing Andrew does after beholding Jesus? Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ, the promised one. And he brought him to Jesus. That's just funny. We could have a long sort of side note on this, but... I mean, really, who's finding who in these verses? Uh, who is the one who came from heaven to earth? Who's the one who's taken upon flesh? Who is the one who's now walking right amongst them? Who is the one that has taken the initiative in all of that? I mean, who's really finding who? All right, but the reality is they also have to make a decision for Jesus. Needless to say, people who encounter Jesus share Jesus with others. I mean, that explains the extraordinary spread of Christianity in the ancient world. People who encountered Jesus then went and shared Jesus. It's what Andrew does with Simon. It is what Philip does with Nathaniel. And notice, when, when Andrew encounters Jesus, he goes to tell his brother, and it's clear he couldn't wait to tell him. He couldn't wait to tell him. It's the very first thing he did, to go tell his brother. And friends, just imagine if Andrew hadn't done that. Imagine if Andrew had thought, oh, you know, I know Peter's had a hard day, like the fishing business isn't going really well right now. He's kind of in the doldrums. You know, I, I just shouldn't bother him today. There's probably a better day to have this conversation. Or imagine he's thinking, oh, you know, I don't want to go up to, to my brother again and have him mock me for all my religious enthusiasm, right? Call me a Bible thumper again or what have you. I mean, imagine how different the makeup of the disciples would have been if Andrew had not gone to his brother Peter. Imagine how our Bibles would read differently without Peter. Imagine how different church history would be without Peter. All of history would be without Peter. Imagine how different, honestly, your life would be without Peter. Why does the gospel come to the Gentiles? Why do you and I still hear the gospel today? It's only because Peter went to the first Gentile, Cornelius, and shared the gospel with him. That's why we believe today. Andrew's inviting Peter to Jesus was perhaps as great a service to the church as any has ever done. None of us can foresee when we bring someone to Jesus, what Jesus will then make of that person. None of us can foresee that. But you know, it's interesting, Andrew actually isn't mentioned much in John's gospel. But every time Andrew is mentioned in John's gospel, you know what he's doing? He's bringing someone to Jesus. John 6, John 12. Well, how about you, member of UBC? When was the last time you encouraged another to come and to behold Jesus? Friends, none of these guys have it all sorted out yet. But Jesus doesn't say to them, wait, you know, you're all but like babes in Christ. You really don't know anything. You better just hold tight a bit. He doesn't say, you know what, don't speak to a soul until you've go ahead at least four years in seminary. He doesn't say, you know, listen... Don't engage any others. Don't go on that college campus until you've had at least a semester in presuppositional apologetics, right? Jesus doesn't say any of that. 
whether young or old, mature or less mature, we're called to invite others to behold Jesus. Because becoming a follower begins with an invitation. It's not about argumentation, not about manipulation, not simply about information or coercion. Our job finally isn't to convince. Right? We're not like the lawyer in the courtroom. We're not necessarily going to have answers to every objection. Some of you will know two, two weeks ago on Sunday night, I was asked a question about the sermon in the morning. And I'm like, I don't know. That's a great question. We don't always have answers to every question. That's okay, because what is it? It's about bringing people to Jesus, starting with the ones we love the most and letting him do the rest, letting him take it from there. Friends, will you do that? Will you commit to do that? Will we, as a church in 2024, will we commit to do that, invite people to behold Jesus? Because gospel preaching, right, that's always been important. But friends, personal witness, personal friendships, have always been one of the primary means by which people are brought and won to Christ. So becoming a follower of Christ is about a person, not a system. It's about an invitation, not simply argumentation. And thirdly, it's about transformation, not stagnation. Thirdly, it's about transformation, not stagnation. I think one of the interesting things about these opening scenes is how each scene is divided by consecutive days. So there's day one where John the Baptist is interrogated by the Jews in verses 19 to 28. And then there's day two, which we thought about two weeks ago, right? John the Baptist bears witness to Jesus. That's verses 29 to 34. And then there's day three, which we encounter here beginning in verse 35, where Andrew and the unnamed disciple... You might be wondering, who is the unnamed guy? Everyone's getting names. They're even being given new names, and this guy's unnamed. Well, many think it's actually the gospel writer John himself, which would explain why he remembers things as well as he does, even the 10th hour, right, because he was there. Well, of course, there's Peter, right? All that's day three. Then day four, there's Philip with Nathaniel, verses 43 to 55. And then it's actually going to be day six. Everything culminates in chapter two with that miracle of the, of the water turning into wine. And in running all these events together, John is presenting Jesus' early ministry in this week-long activity, culminating with that great miracle in chapter two. And given how the prologue, right, verses one to 18, continually point us back to Genesis 1, it's quite possible John is consciously presenting the work of Jesus, right, the word made flesh as a week of recreation, culminating day six, the miracle in Cana, where we read that what Jesus' glory is now revealed to all. And in that sense, this whole opening section is about transformation. It is about renewal. It's about regeneration, and we witness that particularly in these first disciples. For notice how after beholding Jesus, after just spending a little bit of time with him, nothing remains the same. Everything changes for these guys. So Andrew, and again, if the unnamed one is, is John, they spend but a few hours with Jesus, and Andrew's already running to tell his brother. Andrew's already willing to drop everything and go with him to Galilee. On the very next day, Jesus finds Philip, 
calls Philip out, immediately Philip is transformed, right? In theological terms, we call that the effectual call. Jesus speaks and draws us to him. Philip immediately runs to Nathanael and says, we have found him whom the entire Old Testament pointed to, the one the, the Old Testament saints longed to see. We found this Jesus. And we see that change in Nathanael, right? The classic skeptic. Nathanael wasn't searching for anything under the fig tree. Nathanael wasn't looking to join some new religious movement. I don't think any of those things were on Nathanael's mind. He was minding his own business, whatever he was doing under the fig tree. That is until Philip came and invited him to Jesus, and Jesus sees Nathanael coming to him, and then Jesus addresses Nathanael as if he's known him for years. And so in verse 48, Nathanael asks the obvious question. How do you know me? He asked Jesus. Nathanael's like, we never met. We've never spoken. I've never seen you. We're not Facebook friends, and yet you know me? To which Jesus replied, verse 48, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Well, friend, before such supernatural knowledge, before this miraculous knowledge, this personal knowledge of, of whatever Philip was, or rather Nathaniel was doing under this fig tree, Jesus now bearing into his own soul, Nathaniel, the skeptic, immediately cries out, verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You know, it's fascinating. The book of John, right, the Gospel of John is actually bracketed by two accounts of unbelief melting into belief. So here we have Nathaniel in chapter 1, the skeptic, unbelief melting into belief. And then what do we have in chapter 20? You have doubting Thomas, right, unbelief melting into belief. And while it's true that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him, chapter 1, verse 11, we know that's not the end of the story. We're seeing right here some did receive him. Some doubters became believers. And for those who did receive him, verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God. You know, we even see that transforming work uh, in verse 42, right? The naming of Simon. For Simon is brought to Jesus. And Jesus says to Simon, you are Simon. Simon's like, yeah, I'm Simon. That's right. You are Simon. But you shall be called Cephas, which means in Aramaic, Peter. Now, that's a pretty audacious thing to do. Someone you've never met, and you got the gall to say, yeah, you know what, I'm going to give you a new name. It's a pretty bold thing to do, to rename someone. You know, in the Old Testament, it's God who would typically rename someone when they belong to him. Think of Jacob himself, the one who had that vision being renamed and called Israel. And to be given a new name, even a nickname, actually tells us a lot about a person. So Aaron and I, this past weekend, were up visiting William up at Notre Dame. And the senior swimmers always give nicknames to the freshman swimmers. And so I was, I was like, I'm really curious as the dad, right? Uh, William, what did, what did they name you exactly? And you know what he said? He's like, Churchill. And I'm like, Churchill, what? Churchill? He said, yeah, Churchill. I guess because he's the leader and the elder statesman among the freshmen. So they named him Churchill. That's when they think of William, that's apparently what they think. He gets just a little more hair. 
Right? Nicknames say a lot about us. So like when the, the Michigan sports writer years ago was watching this amazing high school basketball player record this ridiculous triple-double and called him Magic Johnson, right? That's a name that stuck. That nickname stuck. It told us a lot about the man. Most of us don't even know his first name. It's Irvin, right? That's his first name. And Jesus gives Peter a nickname of sorts. But it's not so much descriptive as it is prescriptive. Jesus intends to transform Peter into a rock. Not because Peter already is a rock. Peter is anything but a rock. Right? Peter is an emotional roller coaster. Right? One minute he's claiming Jesus is the Messiah, and the next minute Jesus is having to say, get behind me, Satan. One moment he's denying Jesus at his own death, and the next moment, just days later, he's preaching him with power and conviction. He's impulsive. Peter's unpredictable. And yet Jesus is going to transform him into the rock upon which he will build his church, Matthew 16. And that's exactly what happens. Go read Acts 1 to 12. Simon is transformed there into Peter, the rock on which the church is initially built. And so we don't now refer to the book of 1 Simon, do we? We refer to the book of 1 Peter. Praise God. We encounter a man whose life has been completely transformed by Jesus. Friends, that's how it is with followers of Christ. Their lives are transformed. It may be slow, right? There will be fits and starts, but there is discernible change. It's what Jesus does in every true disciple. He calls them and then makes them what he calls them to be. That's what he does. Transformation, not stagnation. That's the mark of a genuine follower of Christ. You know, none of these characters, Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, none of these guys are business moguls. None of these guys are celebrities of any sort. They're ordinary people whose lives are radically transformed by Jesus. I wonder if that describes you. If you claim to be a follower of Christ this morning, has your life been transformed? Anything like the lives of these disciples? How has your life obviously changed? And is that change evident to anybody around you? Would people at work or people at school be surprised to hear you call yourself a Christian? And friend, if so, what does that mean? What might that say about you? You know, the beautiful thing, though, is that Jesus is in the business of transforming people. He is in the business of taking ordinary, run-of-the-mill people and making them extraordinary. Jesus doesn't merely look at us, know who we are like he knew Nathaniel, like to peer right into his soul. Jesus doesn't merely look at us, shake his head, and walk away. That's not what Jesus does. No, he turns to us like he did with Andrew and John. He sees us not as we are in our sin, but as we could be in him. And he calls us to him and he transforms us. Friends, that's what it means to become a follower of Christ. You know, I know in our social media saturated world, following is it's just what we do for a few minutes, right, on our iPhone or some other phone. Maybe it's longer than a few minutes. 
waiting at a stoplight, right? tapping a post, lifting our heads, hitting the accelerator, rushing on with the rest of your life. I just want you to see that's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus drop everything to follow him and witness to him as they're transformed by him. It's about a person, not a system. An invitation, not argumentation. Transformation, not stagnation. Friend, are you a follower of this Jesus? Let's pray.